We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Jojo Meta. She's a co-founder of Ecological Defense Integrity. It's a nonprofit working to expand the legal consequences of destroying nature. Together with a team of lawyers, experts, and diplomats, Jojo hopes to make the crime of ecocide part of the Rome Statute, which is overseen by the International Criminal Court. In her estimation, political and economic avenues of accountability for the world's polluters have failed. In order to stop the devastation caused by widespread destruction of the natural world, we need to elevate ecocide to the same level as war crimes and crimes against humanity. If damaging nature to a certain degree is actually described as a crime, then those who are in the positions of superior responsibility, so that could be CEOs, it could be government ministers, they're actually looking at the possibility of themselves being behind bars. You're looking at a very different arena. It has a kind of weightiness that is not there with civil regulation. You're also looking at shifting the moral baseline culturally because once something's a crime and people understand that something is criminal, there also starts to be a whole movement of the culture towards condemning that thing. We'll discuss the history of ecocide, what it means to commit this crime, and how her team hopes to amend international criminal law. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with the basics. What is ecocide? So ecocide, as defined by my dear late friend Polly Higgins, to the UN Law Commission in 2010, is effectively extensive loss, damage or destruction of ecosystems such that the inhabitants can no longer enjoy their life peacefully. In other words, their peaceful enjoyment will be directly hindered. It means serious harm to the natural world. One of the obvious ones that's arisen over the last year has, of course, been deforestation of the Amazon. It's essentially systematic, widespread, drastic kinds of situations where nature is being harmed. So some forms of extractive industry, like, for example, the tar sands, like the cumulative effects of fracking. When was the idea of ecocide first introduced into academic debate? Because it turns out it's been around for a while. And how was it received at the time that it was first introduced? 
The term was first sort of used publicly at around 1970, and it was used in relation to the damage that was caused by Agent Orange to the environment during the Vietnam War. It was described as an ecocide, drawing a parallel with the also relatively recent concept of genocide, of destroying an entire people. At the time, it was taken up by the Swedish Premier Olaf Palmer, who in 1972 at the Stockholm Conference on the Environment used the term to describe widespread destruction to nature and actually called on the international community to recognise this as potentially criminal. And it was developed not so much in the public arena, but certainly in the legal international arena. It was discussed for decades, actually. And when international criminal law, as we now recognise it at the International Criminal Court, so the Rome Statute, when that document was being discussed and developed, ecocide was actually originally intended to be part of it. So what happened? (laughs) To the best of our knowledge, in the very late stages of drafting, ecocide was dropped from the final agreed draft. It appears that there were certain particular political interests involved, namely the UK, the US, uh, also France and the Netherlands. Interestingly, those are all oil states and also all have nuclear interests. Let's backtrack a little bit. You want to amend the Rome Statute and add ecocide as a crime. What is the Rome Statute? The Rome Statute is the governing document of the International Criminal Court. Effectively, it's the treaty that brought the International Criminal Court into being in 1998. The court itself began to function in 2002. It has jurisdiction over the crimes that are described as the crimes of most serious concern for the whole of humanity. So those at the stage when it was adopted were war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. In the intervening time, crimes of aggression have also been added. So the idea is to add a fifth crime of ecocide, given the perspective that some crime of this nature was originally intended to be in the draft. Polly Higgins often described ecocide as the missing crime. We're kind of repairing the Rome Statute is one way of looking at it. That's a good way to look at it. And what is the process to add this fifth crime? So initially, a head of state or a group of heads of state has to propose an amendment and submit a draft amendment at least three months before the next meeting of the International Criminal Court. The amendment has to be voted as admissible, which takes a simple majority. And in order for it to be adopted into the actual statute to become part of the law, it requires a two-thirds majority of member states. There are clearly a lot of forces that don't want this to happen. How do you plan on getting two-thirds of the member states to sign on? Well, it's interesting. We're actually seeing a very fast movement towards legal remedies for the ecological crisis that we find ourselves in, both climate-wise and in terms of direct destruction. So, for example, you're looking at the Human Rights Commission in the Philippines in December actually coming to the conclusion that fossil fuel companies could be held liable for the human rights violations that result from climate change. You've also seen the results in the Netherlands of the Urkenda case, 
where the highest court in the Netherlands has upheld the appeal of the Erkunda plaintiffs. They are saying the Dutch government has a responsibility to its people to protect them from damage from climate change. There's lots of movement happening in the legal arena, which shows that the global mood is moving much more towards what we've been advocating for many years. We've seen Some very exciting developments recently at the International Criminal Court in The Hague at their annual assembly, which is the key forum for advancing this work. In December just gone, Vanuatu and the Maldives, both island nations, in their official government statements called for serious consideration by the gathered members of the potential of adding a crime of ecocide. So that's the first time that it's actually been stated in front of international community, in a public forum of that kind, since Olaf Palmer's mention in 1972. We're actually coming full circle to a closer consideration of what's needed because the reality is that current regulation is simply not stopping the harm that we're witnessing. Why do this through a legal avenue? What is the power of doing this through the International Criminal Court and making it a crime? trying to change what is essentially corporate behaviour through the economic or the political arenas has simply failed. When we look at the COP negotiations that are now coming into their 26th year, we have seen the Paris Agreement come into effect, which is It's very exciting that the world's agreed on it, but it's not enforceable. And in reality, emissions are not dropping. Self-regulation and all this sort of thing is simply not effective. So that's a key reason for going for the legal sphere. But to look at criminal law in particular is important because in our culture, we use criminal law as a way of defining what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. If you change regulation, which is where most of environmental law sits in the civil sphere, you see an adjustment to the budgeting that business undergo. They may decide that they're going to have to shell out more compensation or they may be expecting more lawsuits, but they don't actually change their behaviour. If damaging nature to a certain degree is actually described as a crime, then those who are in the positions of superior responsibility, so that could be CEOs, it could be government ministers, they're actually looking at the possibility of themselves being behind bars. You're looking at a very different arena. It has a kind of weightiness that is not there with civil regulation. You're also looking at shifting the moral baseline culturally because once something's a crime and people understand that something is criminal, there also starts to be a whole movement of the culture towards condemning that thing. Criminal law has this effect of shifting the kind of moral baseline. There are also particular reasons for approaching this at the international level. Over this past year, we've seen France more than once discussing a law of ecocide in its national government and rejecting it as a national law. At the same time, just quite recently, President Macron was heard to say that he supported the idea of a crime of ecocide at an international level. And there's a kind of quite a simple political reason for that. Most countries would be quite wary of being the first to put this in place, particularly those more developed economies that have very close relationships with polluting industries and so on. If there's a sort of general international movement towards recognising serious damage to nature as an atrocity crime, you know, then you've got a kind of safety in numbers factor, which is very important. Everyone does understand the urgency of the situation. If we can all move together, we can all be subject to the same checks and balances. Let's say you get to pass it and it becomes a crime internationally. How would it work in practice? 
What's going to happen if a big oil company is found to be guilty of ecocide? There's a couple of direct answers to that. The obvious one is that the International Criminal Court is a court of last resort. The national jurisdictions of those countries which have ratified the statute are supposed to take the lead on prosecuting any crimes that come under that. However, if they're unwilling or unable to, then the ICC exists as a backstop. Most ecocide is actually corporate and so there's a lot of potential for simply tapping in to the criminal justice systems, which are already in place across the world. What we like to focus on is the fact that making ecocide a crime, or even just the fact of proposing ecocide as a crime, acts as a very powerful deterrent. We're already starting to see the organisations which are at the very beginning of the production chain, you know, those financiers and those insurers are already having to re-examine where they put their money, partly due to consumer pressure, partly due to litigation. But you can imagine that if something like ecocide is on the books, or even if it looks like it's approaching, you're going to start seeing a change in direction happen pretty rapidly. And in fact, it's already starting to happen. In, in our ideal world, we don't see the CEO of Monsanto or Shell or whatever in the dock because they've actually changed their practices in that interim period. So tell me about the things that are already changing on the ground. What's an example? The big investor BlackRock just recently has started to differentiate between its types of investment and re-examine some of its fossil fuel investments. And that's just one example that's coming from a big company. Also, the head of uh, Siemens issued a letter, quite a, a very eloquent letter, explaining the action that they were taking as a company in terms of sustainability. The other thing that was highlighted by the CEO of Siemens was that their hands are tied by the fact that their legal duty is to their shareholders. And this is an absolutely key point. You know, the CEO and the management of a company, its primary responsibility is to its shareholders. So it's to return a profit. Now, what you don't hear anybody saying is, you know, we're going to do our best to carry on doing what we're doing without killing anybody. They don't have that conversation because killing someone is a crime. And so it's not even discussed, which is why we need to put ecocide into that same bracket so that effectively they know that any profits they make cannot be done by damaging the environment beyond a certain degree. That's extremely powerful. Essentially, you're talking about shifting the Overton window here on what's possible. And it sounds like it's already starting to work. When it's successful, how would it change in terms of stopping ecocide? Because at the end of the day, a big oil company makes money by extracting oil. How is it going to actually stop? This is going to be a question of a shift that those companies already know is coming. And we already have the capacity across the world to produce the energy that we need. The likelihood of those big players exiting the arena is relatively small, but the likelihood of them changing their practices is probably higher than people think. I mean, I, I had conversation recently with someone who's in the renewables department at Shell, and they're doing some incredible projects. They are aware that they're going to have to be able to play in that arena. They simply won't do it until they're forced. Hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I want to shift back a little bit back to process. And you talked about Vanuatu and the Maldives. What is the role of countries like Vanuatu and the Maldives to push 
this amendment for ecocide forward in the ICC? They are the direct victims. But in terms of climate aspects of ecocide, there's major sea rise levels, 10 typhoons a year instead of two a decade. All of this is stuff that they're suffering already and have been suffering for some time. There's a very strong moral force behind what they're calling for, which is for the destruction of the environment to be taken seriously at the criminal level. The other thing that is important to remember is that at the International Criminal Court, it's a one state, one vote system like the UN. So effectively, a small island nation has as much clout and voting power at the ICC as the UK or France or any of these bigger countries and bigger economies. That's actually very exciting because what that means is that with a sort of alliance of smaller states, that changes can potentially be moved forward, if necessary, without involving the bigger economic players. And so that's a particular advantage of the route that we're taking. When you talk about big corporations, they have tons and tons of resources. What is the role of money in terms of putting forward this legislation or this amendment within the ICC? And does it matter if you have a big law firm or several big law firms backing you to support something that would vote down this amendment. The great thing about the ICC is that business doesn't have a say there. Obviously, there's the possibility of them lobbying states to go against this or whatever. But you're looking here at a combination of a global public awareness situation that something drastic needs to be done in order to assure our sort of future thriving civilization on the planet. And you're also looking at a context at the ICC where states have votes. This is not like the climate negotiations. This is not like the COP talks, which could be sponsored by big companies where, you know, the whole arrangement of it revolves around who have the most people, the most money, the most powerful voices. It's actually a much more sort of democratic procedure. The ones who are suffering the most from the situation in which we find ourselves globally are not the same as the ones that are perpetrating it. And so they have quite strong incentives to move forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. How did you and Polly find this avenue? It was almost like you stumbled upon it and then you discovered this whole treasure trove of this back work on ecocide. I think it it sort of was a little bit like that for Polly. Probably about 15 years ago, she had a kind of almost an epiphany moment where she said to herself, it's not my clients that need support here, it's also the earth. Her first port of call was really the nature rights movement, which has actually grown an enormous amount since then and is now a global movement for the rights of nature, for giving nature legal rights. What she realised was that rights are just one side of the coin. We all have a right to life. It's kind of considered our basic human right. But, you know, what protects that right is the kind of corresponding criminal law. So it's a crime to kill someone and therefore your right to life is protected. So you can give nature rights, but unless you criminalise damage to nature, those rights can be kind of ridden over roughshod by people with enough money and power. And that, that's effectively what happens. So that's how she ended up in the arena of looking at the criminal law and started to look at the, you know, the, the situation at the International Criminal Court and almost, almost by chance came across this information about ecocide being dropped out of the final draft. The more I read, the more I'm gobsmacked that it didn't make it into the Rome Statute. 
The fact that it was left out in 1996, what is it telling you about your campaign going forward? What can you learn from what happened then? I think in the context of the global conversation now, what we're seeing is a very, very big difference in people's awareness of what's going on. We have a terrible sort of assumption of separation between humanity and nature. We have an incredibly anthropocentric attitude, even to the extent that when people talk about granting rights to nature, it's almost as if we might magnanimously offer to a river the chance to be a legal person. This is absurd. We're not talking about two separate spheres here. We all live on the one planet and it's a planet of finite resources. We simply cannot continue with this model of constant economic growth that is starting to become incredibly damaging and actually has been damaging for many years. But the difference that we're seeing between 1996 and now is the general awareness of that. It's had a very big jump in the last 12 months. I would ascribe that quite directly to the grassroots movements, to Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future, to Extinction Rebellion. The conversation has been raised to the level of alarm, actually making enough noise and enough disturbance that this conversation has become front and centre for everybody. Now, if you stop someone on the street and mention climate, they'll know what you're referring to, that we're in a climate emergency, that we're in an ecological emergency. Well, since we're talking about public awareness, you also have a public-facing effort called Stop Ecocide, for which you are the spokesperson. What is your public campaign about? Effectively, we intend to raise awareness of the possibility of criminalizing destruction to nature. Because for many people, it either hasn't occurred to them that it's possible to do that, or it hasn't occurred to them that that isn't yet the case. People often will actually use the phrase, they'll say it's criminal, but they don't necessarily realize that, firstly, that it isn't a crime, and secondly, that it could be. Actually, our very first kind of hurdle is to convey those understandings. What we're ultimately doing is creating a kind of moral mandate to protect life on Earth, because the more people that understand the potential of criminalizing ecocide as a kind of a catalyst for a different approach and a different way of seeing the world, the safer those states will be who are willing to take those steps and the more the companies involved in the destructive practices will realize that the public's going to judge them on that. And one of the things that we find, it's, it's quite joyous actually, is that when we give talks around it, you can literally see lights coming on in people's eyes and they're kind of like, my God, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. You know, there is something we can do that could potentially start to change the direction of the entire kind of planetary, you know, disaster runaway train. Well, one of the things that you urge we do is become an earth protector. What is an earth protector and how does an earth protector fit into your movement? So we invite people to declare themselves earth protectors and donate something towards the legal and diplomatic work of actually taking forward or helping to progress the law at the International Criminal Court. With becoming an earth protector, you're actually directly contributing in terms of funding to what we're doing. We are effectively an international advocacy group. And so people are able to sort of directly contribute to that. There is another side to becoming an earth protector. And this is something that's really starting to take off at the moment, seeding a global collaborative movement in which towns and schools and colleges and businesses declare themselves an earth protector school or an earth protector college. And that involves accepting and working on guidelines 
to protect land, wildlife, air, soil and water, as well as endorsing the Stop Ecocide campaign. In other words, saying we believe that this law should be in place. And so we want to start operating from a point of view that is in alignment with that, you know, that is based on a a future idea of a world that starts from first do no harm. What are two things that an ordinary person like me can do? Well, I would say that first and foremost would be to go to the stopecocide.earth website and sign up as an earth protector. The second thing is to spread the word. And everybody has their own networks. And the power right now, in a way that is in huge contrast, even to 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, we all have the power of influence. So just to post about it on Facebook, to tweet about it, to put it on Instagram, you know, make a TikTok video, these kinds of things, just to sort of bring this whole concept into people's consciousness ultimately has the effect of changing the global conversation. And that is what we're already starting to do. So yeah, join us. Tell me, Why are you passionate about this issue? Why are you doing this? Wow. I guess I've always cared deeply about nature. I was kind of an armchair activist for a number of years. And I came across Polly's work via friends. And I remember reading an article about it and thinking, wow, that's the biggest game in town. I'd love to be involved in that. In a more sort of, perhaps a more profound level, there was a certain point for me in my life where I felt I really... I'm committing my time and energy in service of nature, in service of the earth. Working with Polly and working on ecocide crime just felt like the kind of missing piece that could really turn the ship around. And that's incredibly exciting. It is. I totally agree with you. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? When I read the newspapers or social media and, and online and so on, it's both very depressing and upsetting sometimes. But it also gives me hope because I am seeing a very distinctly moving and changing conversation that is going in what I consider to be the right direction. If you speak to someone on a one-on-one level, you often find that actually values are hugely shared between people and that understanding is the sort of principal barrier to moving forward on this. I'm seeing more and more groups joining up. We're already finding a number of key NGOs now interested in working with us. We're seeing more and more states starting to talk about this. All of that collaborative sense of really wanting to build something new and different that is in harmony with nature, you know, moving from the harm to the harmony, is something that I'm starting to see around me. And that is enormously inspiring and, and, yeah, gives me hope. Excellent. Thank you for your time and thank you for your work. (laughs) Thank you very much. I agree with Jojo that criminalizing ecocide is needed to end the widespread destruction of our planet. If innocent nations like Vanuatu are being forced to suffer the consequences of ecocide, the perpetrators of these crimes must be held to account. I was again struck by the many missed opportunities we've had in the past to protect our climate. This season, the theme of squandered chances and lackluster responses to climate change is tragically prevalent. Economic and political pathways to reducing ecocide are, of course, often untenable. In many cases, economic interests promote ecocide rather than discourage it. To end widespread oil drilling, harmful strip mining, or deforestation, we cannot rely on economies or countries 
who profit from these practices. Finally, I was heartened by the idea that criminalizing ecocide will cause a massive shift in public opinion. In fact, international criminalization is our last best hope. Next week, our guest is Joshua Goldstein. He's an award-winning scholar of international relations who recently co-authored the book A Bright Future. It's a look at international responses to climate change. We'll discuss Sweden's success in rapid decarbonization using nuclear power and how their example of replacing coal with nuclear could be replicated across the globe. Nuclear energy is clean in a couple of ways. One, it does not produce carbon emissions when it generates electricity. It's clean on the carbon side. It's also clean on the air pollution side in sharp contrast to coal, which kills a million people a year from air pollution, particulate matter that it puts out. It's also clean in terms of the footprint on the environment. Nuclear power is so concentrated that a very small plant with a very small throughput of fuel and output of waste can replace something with a much larger footprint and much larger throughput. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. That's all for this week on Future Hindsight. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to Future Hindsight. And consider sharing us on your social media or with your friends. Word of mouth is the best kind of endorsement we can get, and it helps us produce more great content in the future. Also, if you have the time to rate or review our show on whatever podcast app you use, we greatly appreciate it. It might not seem like much, but those ratings really do help. Also, feel free to drop us a line at hello at futurehindsight.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next Friday with a new show, and we hope you'll be there too.